I started a series in December and asked a question two weeks ago, why did Jesus come? Today we want to ask who Jesus is and study that. And then next week on Christmas Day, we'll talk about what Jesus offers. And all this comes from Colossians chapter 1. Now that's not a typical text for a study in December in that we don't really talk about the birth of Jesus here. In fact, tonight at 6 o'clock, we will be in Luke chapter 1 and talk about the angel's message there. I invite you to come back for that. But in Colossians 1 is a powerful, uh, just full uh, text that tells us all about Jesus. It brings us face to face with this baby in a manger and tells us who he is. Now we begin with why Jesus came two weeks ago because chapter 1 also tells us that he came for four reasons. To qualify us. To tell us that he claims us to have an inheritance, that we are heirs. He came to rescue us and he came to redeem us as well. Well, this next section in Colossians 1 tells us who Jesus is. So Paul is reaching out to these people because the church in Colossae were were not sure about some things. And there are a lot of thoughts floating around. And so the question is, who is this baby lying in a manger? Who is this bronze-skinned Galilean? Who is this rabbi who teaches like no other? Who is this man on the cross who was able to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who is Jesus? And that question continued even after he went back to heaven. So Paul is addressing this to this church because his readers need to know and we need to know who Jesus is. So I've divided our study into three questions. If you're following along, you want to fill in the blanks. The first one is just asking a question. What do people think? What's the word on the street? What are people saying about who Jesus is? Because back in the first century... There were a lot of different things being said about Jesus. In fact, even before he was born, the angel Gabriel told Joseph in Matthew 1.21, you were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, would say they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew 1 has recorded that. And then in Matthew 2, the Magi called him the king of the Jews. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews, they ask. For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now those are just a few, just at the very beginning. Who is Jesus? Well, when Herod was asked that question, when the wise men came to town, they wanted to know, he wanted to know, someone's been born that's king? He's king. So he started finding out, wanted to know about this new king. Later, when Jesus was full grown in adulthood, John the Baptist called him something so far different from king of the Jews behold the lamb of God John 1 29 who takes away the sins of the world remember the rich young ruler called him a good teacher some people who heard Jesus teach would say he was a prophet the Pharisees after spending time hearing him and feeling threatened they called him Beelzebub they called him Satan they thought that's where he got his information that's where he got his powers and the disciples They still weren't sure. Remember the time they were on the boat with him on the Sea of Galilee? And they said, who is this? In Mark 4, 41. That even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is Jesus? Remember that time when Jesus in his ministry took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi? And he went there for the purpose of asking them the question. Now, if you study this passage, you know that this area was full of idols. They were everywhere. I don't know the way that we can relate to that, but I think of it like this. If you go to Knoxville 
in the fall on game day, you're going to see orange everywhere. That's kind of part of it. And that's the kind of the setting here in Caesarea Philippi. There were these idols everywhere. And so he takes his disciples intentionally to this place and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What are people saying? It's the very question that we're asking. In fact, it's the very question we've always asked. You remember his reply, Matthew 16, verse 14 and following. They said to him, some say John the Baptist. Others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're familiar with that passage enough that we just let it roll off our tongue or we just hear it like we've always heard it. But to say son of the living God in a setting that is full of these dead idols. It was an intentional words. See, all of his life, this was the question, who is Jesus? It was never really answered, even as he was on the, facing his trial. In Luke 23, verse 3, Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? After his disciples saw him in the flesh, after the resurrection, it was an amazing moment, you remember, but Thomas missed it. He wasn't there. So much so that Thomas said, I won't believe until I see him with my own eyes and I touch his side or, or touch the scars on his hand. Well, eight days later, Thomas sees him. And Jesus speaks directly to Thomas and says, come touch my side, touch my hands and believe. And in John 28, John 20, 28 records Thomas response. And you remember that my Lord and my God. So that's some of the different thoughts, some of the different people, what they said about Jesus way back then. And truly today, it's not that different. You've got people saying all kinds of things. So if you ask who is Jesus, the answer you get depends on whom you ask. I mean, we can be all wrapped up in our identity. And Jesus' identity was important. Just as ours is important. We want people to know who we are. And that's important. They know our name. They know who we go with. Who's our family. You might remember the story a number of years ago when George Bush Sr. was seeking election. He went everywhere on the campaign trail there's one story where once he was in a, a senior living uh, facility and he went around and he was meeting all the different people and he met a lady and he said, hi, what is your name? And she said, well, my name is Mary. And so he asked her, do you know who I am? And she said, no, but if you go to the front desk, they'll be able to tell you. <laughs> all of us want people to know who we are. We appreciate it when somebody remembers our name because our identity is important. And the identity of Christ is important. Now, even today, there would be a handful of people, maybe in your own hearing, a bunch of people consider all around the world say it's a hoax. There really was never a Jesus. I mean, he might have existed. It wasn't real. Maybe he was a good teacher, but not God in the flesh. He's sort of this figment of the imagination of these Christians. They kind of dreamed him up, kind of somebody that they think about. But commentary after commentary will tell us the facts that there is more historical and more manuscript evidence as to his existence as anyone who's, face, who's walked the face of the earth. Our system of dating and time revolves around his birth. And yet some well many people will say he's a prophet or he's a teacher, but they don't say that in a kind way. What they're saying is that's all he is. He was a good teacher or a prophet of some type, but not deity, not the Son of God. They don't believe those claims. But talk to any Christian, and I hope they'd be quick to reply. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of the living God. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. 
Well, question number two, what does God say? What do people think is one thing, but what does God say? What does the Bible really tell us about who Jesus is? Because this is most important. And that's where our text comes in. Open your Bibles to Colossians 1 if you'd like to follow along. The verses will be on the screen as well. But this is a very rich part of the text. We're going to walk through it kind of verse by verse, section by section. But let's read verses 15 to 19 to begin with. Talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Some will say this passage in Colossians is the strongest Christology in all of New Testament. And it's packed with a lot of truth as Paul, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is writing to this early church and that we have through inspiration who Jesus is. Look at verse 15. Let's look at this verse by verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The exact representation of the real substance. This one is so precious, so holy, that no one had been allowed to see. But now through Jesus, we have been allowed to see. God allowed people to see the physical representation when he came to earth. The invisible God became the visible God in Jesus Christ to show us how to live. So Jesus is that physical revelation, that representation of the invisible God, or as we think of Emmanuel, what is prophesied to be called God with us. Jesus said himself in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the portrait of God. You see his personal characteristics. You see his heart. See the way he thinks, the way he relates with people. Now, even today, we can open our eyes and see creation and see the marvel of nature and see the power and the magnificence of God. But creation, nature doesn't teach us his character. It doesn't reveal his heart. But in Jesus Christ, God is revealed. God is seen. We see these invisible qualities in Him. His compassion. We see God's forgiveness. We see God's grace. We see God's forgiveness. We see God's patience. We see God's love. Paul goes on to say, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? When we think of firstborn, we think of the one who was born first. And it can mean that. But usually when you see the word firstborn in Scripture, what that means is, of utmost importance. Now, if you're a second or third born, you're thinking, well, what's the difference? Firstborn is of utmost importance, right? Or so they would have you think. But in Scripture, it means they come first, the most important figure in all of creation. John opens his gospel in a beautiful way, unlike any of the other gospels. Almost in, in poetry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. If you studied this before, you know that word there is referring to Jesus. And that's confirmed in verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
A beautiful image, a beautiful passage. Romans 9, 5 says, Christ, who is God over all. In the same book of Colossians, the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Still curious? So when is a one-time statement? You see this over and over out of Jesus' mouth and throughout the epistles. Hebrews 1.11 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory. That's S-O-N, Son, not S-U-N. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. That's the icon. That's the image. That is who God is. Jesus, I hope you know this already. Maybe remember this. Be reminded that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He didn't just start to exist when He was born and laid in that manger. He had always been. That was His incarnation. He was existing even from the beginning. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 1. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. I don't know if you think about Jesus like this, but Jesus is the Creator. For in Him all things were created. Now, we don't think about that much, especially during this month. We think about Jesus as a baby being born in a manger. Not the Creator of the world. But He is the Creator of the world. He was there at creation. Remember the opening of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. It says there in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. He didn't say, I'm going to make man in my image. Let us. Who's us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're all there together. So Paul writes, in Him, in Christ, all things were created. And you know that makes sense? When you think about that and how Jesus lived His life on earth, He demonstrated His power over creation over and over again. He cast out demons and they obeyed Him. Because He's the one who created the angels. He cursed a fig tree and it withered. Because He made the fig tree. He walked on water and held Him up. Because He made the water. He said to the storm, peace be still. And it obeyed His voice because He created the wind and the water and all that makes the storm. He touched the grain, the bread, and it multiplied. Because He created it. One day He rode on a donkey that had never been ridden. It went exactly where he wanted it to go. And why not? He created the donkey. He's the one given the orders. He raised the dead to life. Because he's the author of life. And the Lord of all creation. Paul says all things were created by him and for him. Why don't you notice that? For him. We've been created for Him. I think that's significant because we live in a day and time where we're told and we think sometimes it's all about me and, and, and it's all about me and it's all about me. And Paul reminds us here, no, it's not. It's created all for Him. All for Him. And that goes against so much of the thinking today. Look at verse 17. He reminds us of who's in charge. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, Jesus made some incredible claims about His own identity. And if it didn't make sense, well, then none of it makes sense. But He said things like in John eight fifty eight, 
Before Abraham was born, I am. So it's back to the beginning. What we said just a few moments ago. In Matthew 12, 48, it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, he knows about that story. Because he was involved in that story. Matthew 16, 21, From that time on, Jesus began to explain that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. John 16.15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And in John 5.18, his enemies had had enough. So for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. He was. They were right on that part. He was making himself equal with God. God was his Father. I mentioned earlier... When Thomas had that moment where Jesus appeared to him and said, Touch my side, where he said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. But Jesus, after he said that, didn't rebuke him. He said, No, 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 you got that wrong. He doesn't do that. In fact, do you remember what he said to Thomas? John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. That's you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 18, back in our text. Colossians 1.18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So in everything He might have the supremacy. He's head of the church. He's head of the church because He bought the church. He paid for it with His own blood. And here we see in this verse that word again, firstborn. Firstborn from among the dead. But that's not saying that he was first to be brought back from among the dead. Because we know there's people in the Old Testament that were brought back to life. And in the New Testament as well, like Lazarus. So it wasn't first. So what does it mean then? Is the utmost importance that he come back from the life. Because he was resurrected to never die again. John Stott put it this way. The healings that Jesus did when he brought someone back from the dead were not resurrections. They were resuscitations. Because they would eventually die. But you've heard the statement, when a man walks out of his own grave and his own power, he can be whatever he claims to be. And that's what Jesus did. The power of God worked in him. And he said that he is God in the flesh. Verse 18, Paul says, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning from the firstborn from among the dead. He conquered the grave. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Commentaries on this passage are quick to point out the original language here that Paul was writing here in the Greek. It's written in a certain tense. And that tense there means it's written for a purpose. The first part of the verse tells you the purpose. For the last part of the verse, it sets it up as an indication of intent. So he's the head of the church. He's in the beginning, the first person to conquer the grave. So then everything, he might have supremacy. In other words, because all those things are true, that's why he's Lord. Because all those things are true, that's why he's God. Because all those things are true. And it makes sense. If he's first place in the universe, shouldn't he be first place to us? Shouldn't he be the Lord of our lives? Look at verse 19. 
For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Now this is important too to know. Jesus is not a junior God. He's not a junior partner. He's not a vice president. He's not God's helper here. He's God in the flesh. Remember Philippians chapter 2? It talks about being like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, having His heart, having His mindset. Verse 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, in very nature God, He left that position. He left heaven. He humbled Himself, became obedient to death. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Don't miss out the important implications of this passage to learn who Jesus is. This has incredible meaning for all of us today. If Jesus made me, then Jesus can remake me. If Jesus created me, then He can recreate me. If Jesus holds everything together in this universe, then He can hold the world together for that single parent for one more week. If that's who He is, if He's superior to every kingdom, every principality, then no matter what gets thrown your way by whom, He can handle it. If He's the Creator and in control, then I can trust His will. He knows what He's doing. He's not just got my back, He's got my future. He's on my side. If He's superior to demons, then nothing more powerful than Him will tempt me or come at me. If that's who Jesus is, and that's what He is for you, think about how amazing that truth is. When Jesus was born in the flesh, King Herod was immediately alarmed at that. Because he's king. So to hear news about this new king, he didn't want to hear that because his king was all about him. He wanted to be sovereign. But not the wise men. The magi, they were not looking for position. They were not looking for power. They didn't want to be king. They knew the Messiah had been born. And they wanted to find the king. And when they found God, when they found the baby Jesus, they worshipped Him. Here's the point. Humble people let God be God. Humble people will let God be God. But proud people compete for that place of prominence. They want to call the shots. They want to be in charge. They want to rule their own life. But humble people... Well, let God be God. That's why Old and New Testament quotes the truth of Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do people say about Jesus? What did God say? One more question. And maybe the most important one for you. What do I believe? What do I believe about Jesus? What do you believe When you stand before the God of the universe someday, that's what matters. Who is Jesus to you? And do you live for Him? Are you striving to be a completely committed follower of this one called Jesus? One man shared a story and he couldn't remember who shared it, so I can't give credit to the original author. You may have heard it before. He said the story of Jesus' birth is important for so many reasons because we see ourselves in that. 
There are many people in the story of Jesus being born, but there are three, three in particular. One is King Herod. And what we know about King Herod, both from Scripture and from history, is that King Herod was a wicked man, a power-hungry man. So much so, the antiquities of the Jews tells us he murdered three, his three sons and his second wife and his mother-in-law. Had some mental troubles, some physical troubles as well. When he heard about the wise men asking, where is this new king born of the Jews? Well, he set out to investigate. It set him off. He set out to destroy him. And then the next person in the story to think about is the innkeeper. Although technically the innkeeper is not named, but it's a good assumption that somebody was keeping the inn. Somebody was in charge. Somebody let them know that they didn't have room for them there. And they're oblivious to the needs of Mary and Joseph. They're oblivious to what was going on. They weren't there to... Well, they just ignored them. They ignored Jesus. And then there's the third group. The wise men. And the shepherds. When they saw the sign, when they heard the good news, they set a path. They had to find Him. They had to go. They wanted to see themselves. And when they found Him, they fell down and worshipped Him. They adored Him. And you and I face the same three choices today. Like King Herod, when you hear about this Jesus, maybe your initial thought is, let me investigate and ask some questions. But it might just set you off and you might feel threatened. Or like the innkeeper, you can ignore him. But hopefully you'll be like the wise men and the shepherds. When you figure out who Jesus is, you come to adoring. And the choice is yours. So again, ask the question, who is Jesus to you? What do you believe? Because that's what matters. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, then confess that. Change. The Bible calls that repentance. Let Him make you a new creation. And get this. Give you the gift of His Holy Spirit. So now it's not just God in the flesh. It's God indwelling us. And with the promise that He'll never leave you or forsake you. That's the good news of Jesus coming. And our song of invitation is to encourage you to do just that. Or if we can pray for you in any way, once you come as we stand and sing.